Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. At this date, many of you are still aware of the public information regarding the January 6th Capitol insurrection, which directly impacted and placed in danger members of the North Carolina Congressional Delegation. Experiencing that event from the front line and, in, and engaging in necessary efforts to address the harms that resulted from it was unique and life altering. Tonight, we are going to explore that topic along with other subjects with the Honorable G.K. Butterfield. Congressman Butterfield has served as the elective representative from the first congressional district since 2004. During this tenure, the geographical boundaries of this district has changed several times, which has allowed Congressman Butterfield to represent much of the populations of Northeast and North Carolina from Durham all the way back to the coast. For historical purposes, this is the same congressional district, which was represented by George H. White at the end of Reconstruction. Congressman Butterfield has had a long, fruitful involvement in the politics and business life of North Carolina. His father was the first African-American to be elected to the Wilson Town Council, which placed him in the middle of the emergence of political activities and involvement by African-Americans in North Carolina. He is a double eagle, having graduated from the university as an undergrad and then from our law school. It is certainly appropriate for Congressman Butterfield to be our guest on this 53rd commemoration of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, who served as an inspiration during Butterfield's undergraduate years and his personal leadership in civil rights efforts across North Carolina. Congressman Butterfield, it's an honor to have you as our guest here on the uh, Legal Eagle Review and, and welcome back home. Thank you, Professor Jonas. Good to be back with you, and it's good to uh, be able to talk to our friends in Durham County. Well, let's start off with, with this, because many people are intimately aware of the celebrated history and contributions that Dr. Martin Luther King made to the civil rights struggle. Uh, and I just want to kind of start our discussion off with you uh, with uh, some reflections from you on the impact that Dr. King has had on the civil rights movement here in uh, North Carolina and on your, uh, the development of your political philosophy and uh, activities uh, over, over the years. Well, let me thank you, uh, Dr. Joyner, and thank you, uh, Professor Dawson, for all that you do for my beloved 
North Carolina Central University School of Law. Uh, I can tell you that NCCU School of Law is deeply embedded in my DNA. And anytime I hear the word NCCU School of Law, even the undergraduate school, uh, my adrenaline begins to rush uh, because I have such fond memories of my days at NCCU. And, and more importantly, I know the, 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 the role that, that NCCU has played in my development uh, over the years, not just my development, but thousands of other young African-Americans who have left the campus and have gone out into the world and have done great things. And so thank you very much for, for the Legal Eagle review opportunity. Uh, you've had other guests on your program, and I certainly consider it an honor to, to be with you again. I think I was with you several years ago, uh, and it's good to be back again. And thank you for starting uh, with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, I am a student of Dr. King. Uh, I have studied Dr. King. I had an opportunity to see him three times uh, during his lifetime, never had a chance to shake his hand. I cannot say that, but I did have a chance to see him uh, three times during his lifetime. And I know uh, so much of what he has done uh, for the African-American experience. And so if I get carried away a little bit, Professor Joyner, do not mind holding up your hand or giving me some signal uh, that we've said enough about this subject and we need to move on uh, to something else. But let me just give you the King story very quickly. And I do this every year during Black History Month and, and during uh, the King holiday. King's lifetime, his public lifetime was only 13 years. People don't realize that. He started in December of 1955 in, in Montgomery, Alabama as a young 26-year-old uh, pastor. He was new in town. Rosa Parks had just refused to give up her seat on a city bus. And so the African-American community, the NAACP came together and decided that they would boycott the city buses uh, until they were integrated. And they needed a leader of that movement. And they looked around and they drafted the new preacher in town, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, King assumed that responsibility and for the next uh, 12 months and 20 days. Uh, Dr. King led, the, led the, um, the bus boycott. It was successful. The courts ruled in, in favor of the plaintiffs, uh, ordered the city buses to be integrated. And because of that, Dr. King was thrust upon a, a, a national stage. And that's when his leadership took off. In 1960, uh, Kennedy was running for president, John F. Kennedy, and he approached Dr. King and asked for his support. Dr. King very quickly told Kennedy that he did not get involved in partisan politics, but, but he would. He would if Kennedy would make a commitment to, to embrace a civil rights bill that would guarantee uh, equal access to public accommodations for African-Americans. And that was the agreement they had. King, uh, Kennedy was elected, uh, took office in 61, and nothing happened. 62, nothing happened. 1963, nothing happened. And that's when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, started organizing along with labor leaders, the historic 1963 March on Washington. Uh, it was scheduled for August 28th of 63 and, and it was coming together. And that's when Kennedy started to freak out and, 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 and become very fearful of hundreds of thousands of, of black and white people coming to Washington. And that's when he capitulated and decided to support a civil rights bill. Uh, the Civil Rights Bill at the urging of Martin Luther King Jr. was introduced in Congress. It was filibustered by Southern uh, congressmen and senators. And you know what? Just a few weeks later, on September 15th of uh, 63, after the march on Washington, the, the march was August 28th, September 15th. Just a few weeks later, four little girls were bombed uh, in the Baptist church down in Birmingham. And, and about two months later, Kennedy himself was killed on the streets of Dallas, Texas. And so all of that happened. 
1963. But, but by this time, Dr. King became an international, internationally recognized African-American leader. And that's when King received the Nobel Peace Prize, went to Oslo, Norway, and got the award and came back to this country. And, and President Johnson summoned him to the White House to be congratulated. And when he arrived at the White House, King changed the conversation. And after thanking President Johnson for the award, he said to Johnson, now, sir, it's time for a Voting Rights Act. Uh, Johnson uh, uh, recoiled and said, no, 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 we cannot do that. Uh, we just passed the Civil Rights Bill. We've got to wait a few years before we can get around to voting rights. And Dr. King was very disappointed with that response, left the White House and went to Selma, Alabama and began the, the march that we all know so well, the Selma, Selma to Montgomery March. And we know the violence that took place on the Edmund Pettus Bridge with my dear, dear, dear departed friend, John Lewis. And you know the story of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, Bloody Sunday. And because of that, uh, Johnson uh, embraced not only civil rights, but President Johnson embraced a Voting Rights Act. And because of the Voting Rights Act, we've now been able to make seismic changes uh, in the political landscape all across the country, including in Durham County. And so to start this program, talking about Martin Luther King Jr. is very appropriate. And the fact that April 4th, which is right around the corner, will be the anniversary date of his assassination makes it even more appropriate. I will say as a sidebar professor and professors that on April 4th, 1968, uh, I was standing on Lawson, Avenue, right across from McDougal Gym. Uh, there was a medical doctor over there named Dr. Cook. Uh, I was standing in Dr. Frook Cook's front yard with my good friend Toby Fitch, and Adam Clayton Powell was on the inside of the residence. Adam was in Durham and he was lecturing over Duke University and I was waiting in the yard to go into the home to to say hello uh, to Adam Clayton Power Jr. And that's when the news broke uh, that uh, that King had just been shot and he had died in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I have a lot of memories about April 4th. And I, and I know that uh, Dr. King's work and uh, his uh, eloquent uh, messages uh, served as an inspiration uh, to you and many others uh, who were engaged in the civil rights movement uh, at the uh, at the time. And uh, so we are certainly uh, mindful of the fact that uh, we commemorate uh, his uh, service uh, on uh, on this uh, on this date. We do now, commemorate Dr. King, Professor Joyner, but since we're on the college campus today, let, let's be a little intellectual uh, about this conversation. Uh, Dr. King did not have unanimous support, even in the African-American community. There was a divergence of opinion about his leadership style. Uh, there were those who felt that he was too passive, uh, that the nonviolent approach didn't, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't be the, the tactic used by African-Americans. It should be more militant. And then you had those to the right of Martin Luther King Jr., the Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young and, and, and those of that persuasion who felt the King was too strong. And so you had a divergence of opinion about the strategy for, for, for direct action. And so we need to study that as we go along. I don't have time to develop it further, but I want our students who are listening to understand that Dr. King was controversial, uh, even, even in the African-American community because of his, his view of nonviolence. Yeah, uh, well-beloved well today, <laughs> which is far <laughs> different than it was uh, when uh, he was actually engaged in the struggle. Yes. You mentioned the uh, 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, which was uh, very uh, important uh, to uh, African Americans uh, in North Carolina and indeed all over the uh, the uh, the country. 
Uh, and that is uh, an act that led directly to the one creation of the first congressional district, which uh, was formerly uh, occupied by uh, George H. White. Uh, but in 1990, uh, Eva Clayton, a good friend of yours, uh, became the uh, first African-American woman uh, elected to uh, the first congressional district. And uh, then she was followed by uh, Frank Ballas, who is another good friend of, uh, of yours. Uh, and I think you followed him in that seat. But kind of give us some, some reflections. Just I can give you I can give you a lot of reflections, Dr. Joyner. And again, please cut me off if I get to be too verbal, because I'm not a scholar at a lot of things, but I am a scholar with respect to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and I can get carried away sometime. But let me take you back to Dr. King. Dr. King demanded a Voting Rights Act. Uh, it was finally passed on August 6 of 1965. Uh, that was two weeks before I landed at North Carolina College at Durham, uh, now known as North Carolina Central University. It, it was as I was packing my bags to come to Durham. The Voting Rights Act was passed. What did it do? It did a whole lot of stuff. But the three things that I love to talk about are the following. Number one, it eliminated the literacy tests. In 1900, the North Carolina General Assembly enacted a literacy test which required anyone wishing to register to vote to be able to read and write the Constitution and to interpret the Constitution to the, to the precinct registrar. Because of the literacy test, African-Americans starting in 1900 were no longer allowed to vote because the registrars declared that they could not pass the literacy test. And so the, the Voting Rights Act did away with the literacy test. Finally, the second part of the Voting Rights Act was what we call Section 2. And Professor Joyner, I know you have litigated under Section 2, and I have as well. Section 2 gives every Black community in the United States, nationwide, the right to bring a lawsuit if they want to, to uh, litigate a voting system, if they want to challenge anything that affects voting uh, that might have the, the effect of diluting their voting strength. It gives the ability to African-American communities to sue. And, and Section 2 has been on the book since August 6 of 65. And we have used it very effectively. Did not use it effectively for the first 15 years uh, because the courts weren't taking it seriously. And we didn't really know fully how to, to get the maximum use out of Section 2. But starting in 1981, 1982, we began to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and because of that, we were able to leverage uh, the litigation into to real significant voting changes. And that's why we were able to, to get at-large election systems, multi-member election districts for the legislature, get those broken up into smaller parts so that some of those would be majority African-American. It was because of litigation under Section 2. It was Section 2 that gave us the ability, gave the NAACP the ability to sue the legislature, the North Carolina legislature, over the way we elect superior court judges. And because of that, in 1988, the state settled the case with us, with the NAACP, created eight single-member judicial districts across the state. 
And one of those was in Durham County. And that's why Judge Orlando Hudson, my good friend, uh, was able to get elected in Durham County. And he continues to serve until this, that, this day. That's why I was able to get elected down in the Wilson Rocky Mount area. Eight districts were created so black judges could get elected. And then from there, other African-Americans began to get elected down through the years. Section five was another piece of the Voting Rights Act that is misunderstood. And I'm gonna look at my time and see how much time I have here because I've got to put it on a small package for you. Uh, the section five said that certain states and certain counties within certain states, because they had a long standing history of discrimination, that they were frozen in time and they could not pass any new legislation. They could not pass any new laws. They could not make any changes to their election system. They couldn't do any, make any changes without getting the approval of the Department of Justice. It's called preclearance. Southern states hated preclearance. They said it was an encroachment on the part of the federal government into states' rights. They hated it but it was the law of the land. And for years and years, Southern states have had to get voting changes approved, including redistricting systems approved before they could go into effect. That's how we were able to get the first congressional district and the 12th congressional district in North Carolina approved because of strong enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Well, in 2013, eight years ago, 2013, the US Supreme Court gave us a setback. The setback was in the case of Shelby County versus Holder. The court said that we were still using a formula for deciding which cases are in and out, in or out. We were still using a formula from 1965 and we needed to update the formula. And so the court suspended use of section five and has called on the Congress of the United States to create a new formula for deciding which state should be included, which state should not be included. You see, the federal government does not have the, the right to tell a state how to conduct its elections unless there's a clear record, clear proof of discrimination. Then the federal, uh, the federal authorities then get the, the, the right to do it. And so section five has been suspended. And so over the last seven or eight years, uh, Southern states particularly, but not all Southern states, uh, Southern sta not only Southern states, but California, New York, and other places, Wisconsin, Michigan, other states as, as well, have been changing their election laws to make it more difficult for African-Americans and other people of color uh, and, and senior citizens and those with disabilities, making it more difficult to vote. And you know why? because they know that these demographics are more likely to vote Democratic than vote Republican. And so because of that, Section 5 has been suspended. And so I am now the chairman of the election subcommittee in the House of Representatives, and we will begin hearings on tomorrow. We will begin field hearings on tomorrow to collect evidence, to build a congressional record so that we can enact a new formula so that we can breathe new life back into Section 5. Okay, we're going to have to take our break uh, right now here on the Legal Eagle Review. We are talking with uh, the Honorable uh, G.K. Butterfield, a double eagle, uh, who is here to talk to us about uh, his uh, life's journey through this uh, political process and then to move into some more contemporary discussions about the uh, uh, resulting from the January 6th Capitol. Uh, insurrection. So we're going to take our break right now. I want you to stay with us and we will be right back to uh, continue this, uh, this discussion.
I'm Nastasha Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. The First Amendment states that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Although the First Amendment says Congress, the Supreme Court has held that speakers are protected against all government agencies and officials to include federal, state, and local, legislative, executive, or judicial. The First Amendment was established to help promote the free exchange of ideas, protect unpopular forms of speech, and provide a formal remedy to citizens against their government. The Supreme Court has interpreted speech broadly as covering not only talking and writing, but also symbolic forms of expression, such as displaying flags, burning flags, wearing armbands, burning crosses, and the like. The freedom of speech is a fundamental right, and today it is afforded the highest level of protection. Some forms of speech not protected by the First Amendment are incitement speech and fighting words. Incitement is speech that is intended and likely to provoke imminent unlawful action. Fighting words are categorized as speech likely to produce a violent response or likely to inflict immediate emotional harm. More information is at constitutioncenter.org. Virtual Justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, talk with uh, Congressman uh, G.K. Butterfield. As I indicated, uh, going off, he is a double eagle. We like to emphasize the fact that he is a uh, double eagle uh, who flies high and uh, holds very near and dear uh, to uh, his heart the uh, uh, historic mission and uh, accomplishments of North Carolina Central University. And we are very uh, beholding to him for all of the support that he has given to us uh, over the years. Uh, Congressman Butterfield, you, you've been a, uh, not only a, a civil rights leader uh, in uh, North Carolina, but you have been a first uh, in uh, many uh, political areas uh, in, the, uh, in the state. You were uh, uh, one of the first to serve as a uh, elected uh, Superior Court uh, judge uh, in uh, your district, and you were the second African-American to uh, serve on the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court. And um, you, 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 you come from a uh, politically charged family uh, in uh, the uh, Wilson uh, community where you opened up the first African-American law practice. Uh, there and a law practice that uh, has included uh, Toby Fitch, who became a Superior Court judge, uh, Jim Wynn, who is now on the Fourth, fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, and you know your 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 involvement has been very holistic. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how these experiences, uh, being the first or the second or at the very front? of this uh, movement to uh, confront uh, political bias in the state has uh, informed and directed uh, your political philosophy as you now serve us uh, for the uh, 17th year uh, in, uh, in Congress. 
Well, thank you for that, Professor Joyner. And there's a whole lot packed into that question that I could probably uh, spend a very long time talking about. But, but I've, I've been blessed. I've been blessed over the years to, to have accomplished so much. Uh, but I have not been able, I have not done it alone. Uh, there has always been a, a support system uh, working with me, whether it was my family or my community or my staff. I, I've always had support systems, but I trace my DNA, my political DNA back to when I was a kid. Uh, my daddy in 1953 decided that he wanted to run for the city council in the city of Wilson. There were six wards, six districts in the city. And they looked at the map and found out that Ward 3 was 50% black and 50% white. And so by, by extension, they figured that an African-American could get elected from Ward 3, except there was one problem. Black people were not registered to vote. And so for a couple of years, my daddy and my pastor, uh, Reverend T.A. Watkins, organized the NAACP and they launched a voter registration drive in Ward 3. It was very strategic. And every Saturday morning, they would go door to door and talk to people about this thing called the literacy tests uh, to get them acquainted with it and what to expect when they presented themselves to, to register to vote. Well, by the beginning of 1953, the voter registration in Ward 3 was equal to the white voter registration. And my father ran and won. And on May 5th, 1953, that was a watershed moment, an African-American getting elected to a city council in Wilson, North Carolina. But guess what? That was the same year that R.N. Harris, Richard Harris in Durham, was elected to the city council in Durham. And so African-American leaders were working in tandem with each other all across the state. So dad was elected uh, in 53. That was an Obama moment. Uh, I was a young kid. I, I don't remember very much about it. 1955, he was reelected and that shocked the world because they didn't think that lightning could strike twice, but it did. And so in 1957, when it was time to get uh, reelected a second time, the city changed the method of election from district elections to at-large elections. But they went one step further. They also created what we call full slate voting. Black community could not single shot for a single candidate. So by voting for their preferred candidate, they were also voting for white candidates and they were not able to, to, to have their strength uh, realized. So in 1957, my dad was defeated. And by this time, I'm 10 years old and I realize what racism is, I realized what politics means, and I realized that, um, that one day I wanted to be a lawyer, one day I wanted to go into, into politics. And that was reinforced when the NAACP decided to challenge this new law that was elected in 57. It didn't get challenged till, until 1961. But in 1961, three black lawyers, and I will call out their names just for the record. Uh, Ramallis Murphy uh, was lawyer number one. Sam Mitchell was lawyer number two. George Green, lawyer number three. These three black lawyers uh, filed a lawsuit challenging this new law in the city of Wilson. The case went all the way, Professor, 
to the to professors, to the U.S. Supreme Court. I want you to look at it when you get a moment. Watkins versus City of Wilson, 1961. Decision was 1962 in the Supreme Court. But because of that, it made a profound impression on me. And I've been on this journey uh, ever since then, since the age of 10 years, uh, well, 13 by the time it got to the Supreme Court. But because of that, I've just been been I've just had a passion to try to not just be the first. That doesn't mean a whole lot to be the first. And certainly it sounds good. And I will put it in my book one day. But the fact of the matter is that that, that we have been able to open doors so that other African-Americans can, can step forward and do great things. And even though I still feel like I'm a young lawyer and a young civil rights leader, the fact of the matter is, as Vernon Jordan said to me two or three years ago, uh, I'm one of the senior citizens in the room now when we have our meetings. And that's a good thing because it makes me very proud uh, to see young African-American lawyers uh, and law professors and, and leaders uh, step out. Uh, one of the one of the outgrowths was the creation of, of two African-American congressional districts in North Carolina. And you alluded to it. I won't develop it much further. Uh, but in 1992, 1991, and Professor Joyner, you, you were part of that movement. I remember it so well. I remember meeting over in the legislature one day and, and someone, one of the legislators said, do you know, using the Voting Rights Act, we can create a black congressional district in North Carolina. We can do it. And I didn't smile. I leaned forward and said, I think we can do two black congressional districts. And they kind of dismissed my, my viewpoint. But once we started using Section 5 and, and, and received the support from the Department of Justice, North Carolina was then forced to create two minority districts in North Carolina. And those districts continue. I will also say for the record that I am the seventh African-American congressperson to be elected from Eastern North Carolina. Let me give you the history. Uh, the, the, the first was John Hyman from Warren County. The next was James Edward O'Hara from Halifax County. The third was Henry Plummer Cheatham from Vance Granville County. And the fourth was George H. White uh, from Edgecombe County. Those were the four uh, during, the, during the 19th century. During the 20th century, it has been Eva Clayton, Frank Balance, and myself. So let's see, that's seven. I am, I am the seventh uh, to, to hold this seat and very honored to do so. I try to honor the legacy of my predecessors every day. Thank you so much for giving us this, this rich history lesson uh, and at the same time sharing uh, your personal experiences and, and background. And as you were talking about what your dad experienced um, I was, of course, reflecting on what you were saying about the Voting Rights Act, which, of course, came after those events. And I was also, of course, thinking about the uh, law, voting limitation law out of Georgia. And we see so many um, uh, recycled playbooks, right? And, and I wanted to see if you would share your thoughts about that law in Georgia and how uh, particularly the gutting of the Voting Rights Act with Shelby County has allowed for that law to even be passed in the first place. Well, let me get to the, to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is called the browning of America. All of the statistics seem to suggest that America is becoming less white and more diverse. And that frightens a lot of people. That frightens a lot of people. 
And so as an effort to, to stop that trend, uh, they've come to the conclusion, the opposition has come to the conclusion that in order to, to, to stop African-Americans and Latinos and, and Asian-Americans and other uh, groups of color, in order to, to stop them from voting, and let me tell you, you know, people of color are now voting in unprecedented numbers, even in the middle of a pandemic. And Georgia is is exhibit A. Uh, in order to to stop uh, minorities from voting in this country, that they know they can't do what was done in 1900. That was just to take away the right to vote. Uh, that won't work in, in, in the 21st century. But what will work if they can get by with it is to chip away at things that tend to favor voters of color things that are very benign on the surface, such as the hours of early voting, doing away with early voting on Sunday, uh, changing the rules for, for, for standing in line. You cannot give people standing in line water. You cannot give them any potato chips. Uh, if, and, and, and they know that if they can just turn around 5% of the people in Georgia and other places, they can just turn 5% of the people around who don't want to stand in line for three, four, five, six hours, then that very well could be the margin of victory uh, for the opposition. And so what we see playing out in Georgia right now is playing out in 30 states across the country. And I will be holding hearings on that through my committee very soon, but we're going to expose every last one of them. Anyone who has an interest in it, go to the Brennan Center website. I don't have the website, but just Google Brennan Center voting and you will see all of the changes that are taking place all across the country. Now, this effort to uh, minimize the opportunities for people of color and African-Americans in particular to vote, uh, resulted recently in the uh, insurrection that we witnessed uh, on uh, Capitol Hill, January uh, 6. And uh, I know our time is getting close for our, our break, uh, but I wanted to just, just, just to start out uh, with you kind of discussing where you were and how you were directly involved and impacted by what occurred on uh, January 6th. And then we're gonna, uh, in our last segment, talk about some of the things that have occurred uh, since that time. Sure. Uh, well, first we need to understand that every four years we have a presidential election and that that is the process for the transfer of power in the United States for the office of president and vice president. What a lot of people don't realize is that it is not the popular vote that necessarily decides the, the winner of the election. Uh, it is really the electoral college vote. And that gets very confusing and I'll try to simplify it as best I can. Every state, every state in the union has an election and whoever wins the state, and there are two exceptions, whoever wins the state gets the benefit of the electors that are assigned to that state. Every state has electors equal to the number of House members plus two United States senators. So North Carolina, for example, has 15 electors. California, by contrast, has 55 uh, electors. Uh, some states only have three. So it depends on the size of your state, but each state gets an allotment of electors. And so what happened in 2020 uh, when it became clear that Donald Trump was not going to win this election, he started setting the stage 
to question the validity of the electoral college count. And so after he lost the popular vote on, on November the 6th, it was then time for the electoral college to meet on December 14th in each one of the state capitals. And that was just supposed to be a rubber stamp process. You come in and you just rubber stamp who won the state. And so on December 14th, all of the states assembled in their state capitals and all of them certified the vote from their state. But then the next step in the process is on January 6th. That's when all of the states send their electoral results, results to the Congress of the United States that will, that will identify who won the state among the popular votes. And so 50 envelopes came to Congress and it happens every four years, 50 envelopes came to Congress, one representing each state. And the process is for the House and Senate to have a joint session on January 6th. The vice president presides over the joint session. My committee, the House Administration Committee, opens the envelopes and we pass the result to the presiding officer. And so uh, what happened here was that President Trump uh, tried to get many of his like-minded friends across the country who were part of this process to question the validity of the certifications from the state. Under the rules, it's called the Electoral Count Act, under the rules, if a single House member combined with a single senator object to a certification, then the process is for the two bodies to separate into two separate bodies and to debate for two hours the validity of the objection. And so for some strange reason, the Republican extremists decided that they were going to challenge six states and if successful, those six states would be enough electoral votes to overturn the result of the election. And so that was the strategy on January 6th. Six states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, those were the six states. And so as we assembled on January 6th, when they got to the state of Arizona, that was the first, and, and the states are called out alphabetically and you cannot complete a state until it is completely resolved. You cannot even go to the next state until the results are, are finally certified. When they got to Arizona, one Congressman, one Republican Congressman, one Republican Senator objected to the certification. The two bodies separated for the purpose of debate. What was happening at that very moment was that, that insurrectionists people who later proved to be insurrectionists, they were gathering at the White House to listen to the President of the United States air his grievances. And President Trump, President Trump empowered and authorized and instructed these people, these protesters, to march to the Capitol and to engage in an insurrection. And so they did that. They did it right in the middle of the two bodies engaged in two hours of debate on the Arizona certification. And maybe after the break, I can talk about what happened after that. Okay. We're going to take our break uh, right now, and we're going to return uh, to this uh, discussion about the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection uh, with uh, Congressman uh, G.K. Butterfield. I want you to stay with us, and we'll be right back.
Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with the Honorable G.K. Butterfield, Congressional Representative for the North Carolina 1st Congressional District and also a double eagle. Uh, Congressman, you were talking before the break about the insurrection, what was going on, where you were, you talked about uh, the, the getting ready to debate um, when there were oppositions raised, when Alaska was presenting their, uh, their numbers. Can you pick up at that point and, and as you share with us, um, where, where were you during this time and what was going through your mind as the events were unfolding? Well, it was an alphabetical roll call by state and uh, they, did not, they did not have an objection until they got to Arizona. Uh, Arizona was the first state to be objected to, uh, and that was so because uh, Joe Biden had won Arizona, and and Donald Trump wanted to take away those electoral votes from from Joe Biden, and so that was the first opportunity for them to object. When the objection took place, the two bodies separated. The 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 Senate went down the hall into the Senate chamber, and Vice President Pence was presiding, and in the House of Representatives. Uh, that's when Nancy Pelosi was presiding over her house. I was not on the floor. Because of COVID, we had been divided into eight groups to come onto the floor. And so I was in my office, which was right across the street, uh, right across the street. I have big glass windows in my office and I was looking at the Capitol and I could see thousands of people descending upon the Capitol grounds and we knew the protesters would be in town we knew that we, we'd been cautioned about that uh, and we knew that they would be loud and verbal and, and they would be protesting uh, what we did not know was that they would be violent they would be insurrectionists and so as I watched I could not believe the mayhem that I was seeing out on the Capitol grounds but I still did not appreciate the extent of it. I did not believe for one minute that these crazy people would ever cross the threshold of the United States Capitol. That was beyond my comprehension because I've been in Congress 16 years and I know how secure our grounds are. I know how secure the Capitol is. I can't, I'm a member of Congress and I cannot drive through the barricade without my car being searched. And all of the Capitol Police know me, but that is the protocol. Uh, officers all around the Capitol with machine guns and with, with high-powered weaponry. Uh, I just cannot imagine. But then we saw the news breaks on television that the Capitol had been breached and that hundreds of, of insurrectionists were roaming the Capitol. 
And I thought that was absolutely terrible, but I still didn't realize the extent of it. I just thought these were just crazy people walking around singing and talking and, you know, saying crazy stuff. I did not know that they had done what I later found out they did. They entered the Senate chamber. And that's when the, the, the Capitol Police evacuated the senators and evacuated uh, Vice President Pence. Uh, over on the House side, very quickly, uh, they evacuated the Democratic leadership. And let me tell you that our Democratic leaders, all, all congressional leaders have Capitol Police details assigned to them. Uh, others of us who are more rank and file, we don't have that. Uh, but every leader has a detail. And I could see on television Pelosi's detail pushing her off the floor. I could see it. I could see it on my television. I had two TVs going. Uh, and I could see a lot of pandemonium on the House floor. And then I saw Pence on the other television being removed from, from the rostrum in the Senate. And I knew we had a problem. But I thought it was just a precautionary measure on the part of the Capitol Police. I did not realize that these members' lives were literally in danger. They had built a, a uh, gallow outside of the Capitol where they were going to hang the vice president because he was presiding over a, a, a system that would eventually confirm Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And so, and so the National Guard was called in. We were getting emails constantly telling us to shelter in place and to lock our doors and to prepare to evacuate. I didn't. I, I just thought they were being cautionary. I really didn't appreciate the full scope of it. So finally, after the National Guard came in three hours later and quelled the insurrection, uh, then we had to decide, then I, I was allowed to go to the floor. I went underground to the floor and we met very quickly and Pelosi told, and I'm in the second tier of leadership. I'm what is called a senior chief deputy whip. I'm in that second tier. Uh, we met and Pelosi said, uh, instead of going to the alternative site to continue our session, we're going to do it here tonight. And I asked Congressman Clavin, what is the alternative site? I didn't know we had a secondary site. I, I've been there 16 years. I didn't know it. But there is an off-campus site that we could have been taken to, and we would continue the operation of Congress. But Pelosi decided, the Speaker, that we would continue that evening, and the Senate decided as well. And so after we reconvened at 9 o'clock, then the roll call of the states continued. And by this time, we believe that the Republicans had come to their senses and would no longer object recklessly to the certification of the states. Wrong. They continued to object. Then they got to Pennsylvania. They filed an objection. The two chambers had to separate and have debate. As I walked through the Capitol, I saw the debris. I saw the broken glass. I saw the, the Capitol police officers looking like that they were just absolutely terrified and they should have been terrified. And, and so I saw all of the mayhem, but still didn't recognize, realize what had happened until the next day uh, when, when the news reports were, were visible uh, for the world to see. Uh, the lady who was killed by the Capitol police was five steps away from the door of the floor where we where we hold our sessions. And so the police officer had no choice uh, but to take her life. And so I feel, and I guess psychologists and psychiatrists may talk about this from time to time with men and women who go to war. I feel some, some regret that I was not on the floor to be with my colleagues 
when they had to duck and dodge and put on gas masks. I feel like I was missing in action. And, and I'm sure, you know, psychologists have some explanation for that, but I was safe. I think I was safe in my office. I was locked in my office uh, and my colleagues, many of them about, I guess, 100 uh, were on the house floor and they were exposed to danger that is now ingrained in their mind. And I will say publicly, cannot call names, some of them are in psychotherapy right now because of, the, uh, of that experience. Many of our police officers, Capitol Police officers are receiving psychotherapy. Two have committed suicide since January 6th. That, that, those were the events of January 6th, but then we had to go forward. On January 13th, in seven days, we huddled together and decided we would do an impeachment proceeding. Or we had a debate among our members about whether it should be one count, multiple counts, or no counts, whether we should just ignore it and, and move on. We made the decision we could not ignore what had happened on January 6th. And so we voted on a one count a one count article of impeachment, uh, which was then heard on January the 13th, which was another Wednesday. Seven days later on another Wednesday, which was January 20th, that's when with all of the fencing and all of the 25,000 National Guardsmen that surrounded our, our Capitol, that's when we walked from our building over to the Capitol steps to witness the inauguration of the 40, sixth president of the United States, Joseph R. Biden Jr. and the vice president, Kamala D. Harris. It was a great day on January 20th. Remember January 6th, 13th and 20th, Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Those, those dates will be etched in infamy. What, what did the insurrection and the failure of the Senate to confirm the impeachment from the House tell you about the status of our democracy? Well, in order to bring an article of impeachment in the House, it takes a simple majority as 218 votes. We have 222 Democrats in the House, and so we have the votes in order to impeach. And we did it in a very solemn way. But in the Senate, that's where the trial takes place. It takes a supermajority in order to convict in the Senate. It takes 65, 66 votes, I don't remember exactly, votes in the Senate. We only have 50 Democrats in the Senate, 50 Republicans, and so there weren't a sufficient number of Democratic votes in order for conviction. We could not convince Republican senators to vote for conviction. So as a result of that, the president of the United States was acquitted. But we did our job in the House. We brought the articles of impeachment. But now history will, will, will be replete uh, with information about this process and how this president for four years, for four years tarnished America's image around the world, how he discredited and, and insulted and, and, and good thinking, good solid Americans uh, brought down their character and their reputation, uh, how he woke up every day uh, determined, determined to embarrass and to insult and to bring the nation down. But we finally ridded ourselves of Donald Trump on January 20th. We, we are now in very capable leadership with Biden-Harris, and we are now repairing the, the damage that has been done by President Trump. 
much of the damage done by Trump, mind you, is not damage that you can see. It's the damage that you cannot see. It's the damage to the democracy. It's the damage for people having faith in the electoral system. We've got to rebuild the faith and confidence of the American people that the federal government works. And that is what we're doing right now. And that's why uh, we are passing, we're going to pass a $4 trillion infrastructure package because no longer can we uh, be satisfied with giving tax breaks to rich people. Uh, the, the Trump tax cuts were just absolutely insane. Uh, but we've got to, to support uh, and, and empower uh, every single American citizen who is in need of help. Uh, and that includes black, white, and brown, and, and all political persuasions, Democrat and Republican. And that's why the infrastructure package that we are will be voting on in a few weeks will have substantial investment in not only hard infrastructure, such as roads and highways and bridges, but also human infrastructure which is senior, senior citizen centers and child care centers and food programs and, and building homes that are in disrepair that are in need of winterization and other very worthwhile projects. We're going to invest uh, in, in, in the American people and the American people will be proud. Those who voted for Joe Biden will be very proud that they invested their vote in a wise way. And hopefully those who did not vote for Biden-Harris will understand that they made a mistake, that Democrats uh, are about working people and about the future of America and not about special interests. Congressman, we have a, a few minutes left. Um, what advice or suggestions would you give to your constituents, to the American people about how to make sure we continue to progress forward? What can we do to support our elected officials and to also hold our elected officials accountable? I get asked that quite often, Professor Dawson, and thank you for asking it on, on the Legal Eagle Review Program. WNCU uh, 90.7, you're just doing a phenomenal job uh, in, in, in this community. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, we, we've got a lot of African-Americans across the country who are not tuned in to what is happening in their state capitals and in Washington. Certainly there are other groups as well, but I'm speaking now to the African-American community in particular. We've got to pay attention. We've got to pay attention because those people who are serving in elective office are making decisions every day that will affect us for generations yet to come. Not just for those of us who are alive now, but our children and our grandchildren and their children. We are making very profound decisions. And so you need to have a say on who gets to serve in these positions. And you've got to be able to influence how they think. I cannot tell you the number of times that I came home for a, for a congressional recess thinking one way on particular legislation. But after going around to my 15 counties and listening to, to grassroots organizations and groups about what their dreams and their fears are, it, it oftentimes recalibrates my thinking because you can get in a bubble sometimes in Washington, D.C. and kind of forget, you know, kind of forget the real world. Uh, I've made it a point not to do that. Uh, when I come home, uh, I tell people all the time, I go out to McDonald's in the morning and, and have coffee with, with the veterans and because they're sitting around playing checkers and McDonald's. I learn. I'm not showing off. 
I'm learning from these guys. Uh, and I hear what they have to say. I go to groups. I, I, I go to churches. I go to funerals. I, I do everything that I can in order to, to know how my constituents feel. And so, so often I've gone back to Washington on Monday morning and had a completely different take a completely different take on a particular issue. So your elected officials, whether they are black, white, or brown, they need to hear from you and to hear your views because your opinion really matters. If, if you think Washington is broken, it is broken. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, unnecessary partisanship in Washington, uh, but we're not gonna fix it. The American people are gonna fix it. And it's gonna be fixed when people like you listening to this program uh, get involved, let your elected officials hear from you, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, and most of all, vote in every single election, whether it's the Durham City Council, the Durham County School Board, the legislature, governor, president, whatever the issue is, you've got to be heard. We've got to address the North Carolina legislature uh, because it's in bad hands right now. They're making some very uh, bad decisions that are affecting many of us, including HBCUs. And I'm not going to get on that soapbox today because that's not what this is all about. Uh, but I just want those listeners to understand that it's also elected officials who appoint the North Carolina Board of Governors who control the 16 or 17 universities, uh, state universities across North Carolina. And so you need to see the interconnection uh, between all of these groups. And it starts with voting. You must vote. I remember a time in Durham when there were only a handful of people who could vote. But now African-Americans in Durham are voting by the tens of thousands Look at your city council, look at your board of commissioners, look at your legislators, legislators, look at your judges there in Durham County, and you will see how far we've come. But we've come this far by faith. We've come this far because we have been organized as a community and we've reached this point because we have voted and we have been heard. And so I wanna thank you, Professor Joyner, for your friendship. I wanna thank you, Professor Dawson, for your intellect and your leadership uh, at the law school. Uh, I wanna thank Legal Eagle Review. You, you're still on the case and you're still uh, presenting the views uh, of, of, of our leaders to the Durham community. And I thank you. I thank WNCU 90.7 FM. I remember when you first started and you're carrying on the tradition that you have been entrusted to, to carry on. So thank you so very much for having me today. Uh, may God continue to bless you. May God bless North Carolina College at Durham, my alma mater, now North Carolina Central University. Thank you very much. Thank you, Congressman. We know how incredibly busy you are and, and we are honored that you took so much time to talk with us and to share this information with us and our listeners. Um, we really appreciate your never-ending support, and um, yeah, we just can't thank you enough. And we'd also, of course, like to thank our listening audience for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you have learned something. We're sure you have. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.